I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Lamentations. Not a part of your Bible that often opens by itself to that section. Lamentations, we will begin in reading in chapter 4, verse 21, and we'll read through to the end of the book. Lamentations, chapter 4, verse 21, declares, Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz. The cup shall also pass over to you, and you shall become drunk and make yourself naked. The punishment of your iniquity is accomplished, O daughter of Zion. He will no longer send you into captivity. He'll punish your iniquity, O daughter of Edom. He will uncover your sins. Remember, O Lord, what has come upon us. Look and behold our reproach. Our inheritance has been turned over to aliens and our house to foreigners. We have become orphans and waifs. Our mothers are like widows. We pay for the water we drink, and our wood comes at a price. They pursue at our heels. We labor and, give no, and have no rest. We have given our hand to the Egyptians and the Assyrians to be satisfied with bread. Our fathers sinned and are no more, but we bear their iniquities. Servants rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the risk of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is hot as an oven because of the fever of famine. They ravished the women in Zion, the maidens in the cities of Judah. Princes were hung up by their hands, and elders were not respected. Young men ground at the millstones, boys staggered under loads of wood. The elders have ceased gathering at the gate, and the young men from their music. The joy of our heart has ceased. Our dance has turned into mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. Because of this, our heart is faint. Because of these things, our eyes grow dim. Because of Mount Zion, which is desolate, with foxes walking about on it. O oh, you, O oh Lord, remain forever. You are thrown from generation to generation. Why do you forget us forever and forsake us for so long a time? Let us back, turn us back to you, O oh Lord, and we will re be restored. Renew our days as of old. Unless you have utterly rejected us and are very angry with us. Well, I want to begin by giving you a little, um, it's kind of a weird thing, the last sermon on Lamentations. I want to give you some things that normally I would do during the introduction of a book. But we want to talk a little bit about um, the format of this book because I really haven't followed. I told you that kind of in passing the first week that I wasn't going to follow the formatting of the book um, because I wanted to pick up on certain thematic um, verses. And the reason um, that I did that was because this is really a, Lamentations becomes a really good study for um, topical because we have a repetition of different themes throughout the five uh, laments. There, there's five chapters because this, this is perhaps, let me back up here. This is perhaps one of the most organized and carefully constructed books um, among the Old Testament. Um, comparable maybe to Psalm 119, where you have um, it built upon the Hebrew alphabet. Um, chapter 1, and you'll notice that the chapters all have 22 verses, except for chapter 3, which has 66, which is 3 times 23. 22, sorry. 3 times 22. Um, because it is built upon the Hebrew alphabet. And so if you had studied this in Hebrew and tried to memorize it, each chapter goes from the beginning of the alphabet to the end of the alphabet. And, uh, and so it would be at least the first uh, four chapters, the four laments. And because of that, each chapter has some material that is repeated in other chapters. And so they actually... Um, form five separate laments or dirges or poems or songs. We're not really sure how it was um, presented um, that are clustered together and organized here. And, um, and so I'm very, it's very similar trying to study five different psalms um, that have similar themes and, uh, and, uh, and events that are, that are described. And so I, I know I have broken from that pattern. And uh, again, we either had to come to the book of Lamentations willing to do each study, which is kind of a shotgun approach. If we'd done each lament 
on its own because they would have handled multiple themes. Or we could have done a thematic study where we just did the themes and went through all five. Or do what I did and broke it up so that I had a beginning and an ending of a the- on one theme. And I've done that and I've done a lot of damage to the organization of Lamentations, but I don't think any of you noticed it. So I wanted to wait till now to let you know. I did intimate it at the beginning, but I, I want to fully help you fully appreciate that um, at this point. So we are in the, at the end of the chapter four, the fourth lament. The fifth one is different. Um, I told you four of those are built upon the Hebrew alphabet. The fifth one is not. Um, but it still maintains the same pattern of 22 verses, but uh, we don't have the organization uh, in the acrostic of the alphabet in Hebrew. And so we are going to uh, uh, come into it, but we are going to see somewhat of a, of a, a, a strong presentation that God is uh, broader in his working than just the events of the fall of Jerusalem and, uh, and just with Israel, as we're going to see. And that's why I want to include verses 21 and 22 with a study of chapter 5, is to see the full cycle of God's working and uh, the expectation of that being dependent upon uh, man's repentance. And before we do that, let's go, Lord, in prayer together. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for your word. And as always, we pray that your spirit might direct this time, that it might be uh, in accordance with uh, your truth, that uh, it might be effectual in our lives, that we by faith might believe it, that it might be uh, free of error and opinion and, and the philosophies we bring to it from our culture and, and our own interests and Lord we want the pure milk of your word that we might grow thereby in Christ Jesus name amen well we come into the last um, two verses of chapter 4 and we see a very different kind of spirit if you will Um, it is a chastening not a lament, technically, of what they have experienced, but rather um, very similar to what many would experience is recognition that there are those laughing and enjoying what's happening to, what horrible things are happening to us. Uh, in this case, the fall of Jerusalem, there's a recognition that, yes, the Babylonians were the instruments of God, and we don't find this statement against them, um, they, God raised them up for that purpose to discipline his people because his people were in sin. And so um, we're not going to find uh, statements against the Babylonians here. We are going to see a little bit in Jeremiah, but we don't find it here in this lament. But there is another group of people, and that group of people were the Edomites. And the Edomites uh, had long been enemies of Israel, and uh, when the Babylonians came down, the Edomites um, never fought against the Babylonians. They claimed kind of a neutrality in that, Uh, and in fact, they were actually providing aid and help to the Babylonians in their uh, attacks on Israel, on Judah, and Jerusalem. And uh, so they're sitting back there kind of, oh, can't wait to see what happens and to our enemies that we've had all these years, an opportunity to see their destruction. And uh, that's not gone unnoticed by Jeremiah or Israel, and it hasn't gone unnoticed by God either, that here they are sitting back enjoying the, the uh, suffering of a disobedient people of God. And I want to contrast the, these between the Edomites and some of the Babylonians. If you remember, the commander of the army of, the, of Babylon has an engagement with Jeremiah, and he says, this, the people didn't listen to you. This is obviously your God coming after you because you were disobedient. And this is a summary, really, of what happened. And it is not a, a, a laughing at you. This is a very serious matter that the commander of the Babylonian army brings to him and says, this should never have happened to you. 
If you had simply been obedient to your God and followed after him, and the Babylonians were well aware of who the God of Israel was, um, just as well aware as the Syrians were. Remember, they were the ones that sent the entourage during the days of Hezekiah to talk about who is this that moves the heavens? Who is your God? And so they knew who they were dealing with. Um, And so that kind of, of rebuke, um, to the people of Israel, to the people of Judah, from the commander of the army of the Babylonians, is is purposeful and true and genuine, um, and you don't find a chast- uh, a a you find a chastisement there, but you don't find a ridicule there. There's almost a sorrowfulness. Why would you let this happen? Um, we would never do that to our false gods, but you've done it to the one true and living God. But Edom was different. Edom it was all about ridicule. It was all about expectation and wanting this to happen. And Edom couldn't wait till it happened, and they're and they they waiting to just pounce on the, the, the after effects of it. And so in the course of the lament, it now turns to consider them and it says, yeah, you go ahead and rejoice and be glad. And, and, and there's definitely an a idea here of sarcasm. O daughter of Edom, you who dwell on the land of Uz. Uh, this is the, the identification of the region that, that we find also described for Job. Um, it says, the cup shall also pass over to you, and you shall become drunk and make yourself naked. Our punishment is pretty much finished, it says in verse 22. The punishment of your iniquity is accomplished, O daughter of Jerusalem, Zion. You, our punishment is pretty much done. We're, we're going to have to live in another country for a while. We're going to talk about that in, in, chap, in the fifth lament in chapter 5. But our punishment, the worst of it, is over. But yours is still coming. You know, ours is done. You're laughing at it. You're ridiculing it. But um, you, he will punish your iniquity, O daughter of Edom. He will uncover your sins. Uh, let it be recognized that while we can't do anything about it, while we are powerless to, to stop your ridiculing, stop your laughter, um, God isn't. And God is recording that. God is remembering that. That we do not take glory in his punishment of other sin. We recognize that it is necessary. We recognize that it has a purpose. Um, and we recognize it's where it came from. That is what necessitated it. Um, that was the disobedience of people. But we do not rejoice in it. And God doesn't. God doesn't rejoice in having to do this to his people. Um, the Bible even says that God doesn't even find pleasure in the death of a, of a sinful man. He finds no pleasure in anyone's death. He does not rejoice at it. It was a necessary thing. Um, It was horrific. And we've seen some of the horrors of, and we're going to see some of the disgrace come into chapter 5. But God doesn't take pleasure. We don't take, and so when we see God's hand against someone, we do not take pleasure in it. But we recognize it. And much like the Babylonian commander of the army, um, we should reflect upon it and say, well, lest that come upon us, we need to be faithful in our following after God, lest that come upon us. And we have seen it in our age, and it is really almost too frequent that we see Christians reveling almost in God's judgment over sinners. And we have no place, there's no place for that. We become like the Edomites in that. And whether it be other churches, other groups, other denominations, um, we, we should take no pleasure in either their sin that brings judgment nor upon the judgment of God upon them. Um, neither do we do that with other nations. And, and uh, again, the big example that we have out of Scripture is what happens when the two witnesses are killed during the seven years of God's wrath. The world celebrates. Um, And we saw what that was like when um, our government declared that they were able to kill Osama bin Laden. 
and the celebrations that broke out and the rejoicing that was out there. And there's no place for that in the Christian life to celebrate over the death of even the most wicked. It is not something to be celebrated. It's something to be sober-minded about and to reflect upon and to recognize that that, uh, that means another soul going into eternity um, without the truth. And his, that tragedy is just as tragic as um, the nicest guy on the block dying and going into eternity without a knowledge of Christ and a, and a trust in him. And so the Edomites are condemned here. And we're going to get back into Jeremiah where Jeremiah is going to turn his prophecy against those nations that choose to turn away from God. They should have, by seeing what God did to Jerusalem, they should have taken warning. And instead, they simply find cause to celebrate. And later on, granted for the Babylonians, it's going to be a couple of kings later, they're going to turn their back, and sure enough, the prophecies of Jeremiah and others are going to come true, and they're going to fall like that to the Persians. Um, They're going to get what's coming, but it's not coming at this point because they're simply doing what God wants them to do. But later on, they're going to do what? They're going to make fun of it. So by the time Belshazzar comes along, what's he doing with the instruments from the temple of God? He's getting drunk by drinking out and and celebrating it. And God says, no, 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 that's not, no, you're done. And that, you know, then the hand writing on the wall, and Daniel comes in and interprets it, and boom, they're over. The Babylonian Empire's gone. And that's the nature of what we see here in this statement against the Edomites. And so recognize that, that there is no celebration of judgment, but there's a recognition of its necessity, and there's a recognition that it is still the the attribute of God at work among men, and, um, and, and we warn of it. And so the warning here from Jeremiah, here in Lamentations, as it's going to be in Jeremiah in that book, um, is it's coming. You ridicule us in our day of judgment, um, that's a sin that God's not going to forget, and you're going to receive a judgment for that. It's going to come. God's going to remember that and come after that. And so, um, we find that God's going to recount, record that, that that punishment will be done, it will be completed uh, one day. Right now, it's the judgment of Zion, but that's pretty much completed. Now, your iniquity is going to be uncovered, and uh, of course it does. We come now into chapter 5, and um, we are in the throes of realizing that at this point, um, Israel is in captivity. So it's not only the destruction of Jerusalem that is producing this lament, that the the understanding of what their role is going to be now for some time, at least initially, uh, certainly over the course of the 70 years, the place of Jerusalem, of, of the Jews among First, the Babylonians, and then the Persians is going to be elevated, um, substantially elevated. Um, But in the initial stages of their captivity, uh, which is what Jeremiah would have witnessed, both in the land and among those that were being carried off, um, because remember, there were foreigners that were coming in that were making life very difficult for the the survivors there uh, in the land of Judah. And uh, because of their debilitated state. And this is what Lamentations is about, this last lament, the last dirge of chapter 5. And so he says, Remember, O Lord, what has come upon us. Look and behold our reproach. And this is about the ongoing um, shame that is theirs. And again, they are past the worst of it. The death and destruction, the the horrors of the siege are pretty much done. Now it's the realities of what is life going to be like now for us. And so he says, our inheritance has been turned over to aliens, our houses to foreigners. 
We have become orphans and waifs, our fathers like widows. And he begins to describe that the place that they call home is now somebody else's. Um, they are displaced people. And so he uses these ideas of the widow and the orphan, um, and certainly many of them are. Many of the survivors are that, but they are displaced from their home. Not only relationships within the family, but displaced from all that they are familiar with. They're going to be carried off into lands that they are, don't know the language of. Um, they are going to be displaced from their role, from their position, and we're going to see that brought out extraordinarily vividly in this, in this dirge. Um, we're going to have them talk about how nobody is doing the jobs they used to do. Just total displacement of life. But remember, their life was a treasure. They survived. But now they got to live a totally different life. It's not business as usual anymore for this whole generation. And so he's going to recount for this. What is it that, we're, that life is like? In verse 4, it says, We pay for the water we drink. Our food comes at a price. Uh, they pursue us um, at our heels. There in verse 5. Um, and uh, really that's a, a Hebrew idiom that... Um, is probably not well translated there. It really refers to what happens when a victor uh, ceremoniously shows his domination over someone else. They would make the king or the prince or whoever they had domination over lie, get on their knees or lie down on their faces in front of them, sometimes on their back, usually on their face, and they would put their foot over their neck as a demonstration that's how low you are, this is how high I am, and I can crush you at any time, so you better follow me. And that's actually what's being described here, is that they put their foot on our necks. They are demonstrating that they are now in charge, and we are not in charge of ourselves, let alone anything else. That they have totally and completely dominated us, and that on a whim they could destroy us. And that is the the description used here, and uh, that's uh, the pursuit of our heels is really they've stepped on our necks. Um, we labor and have no rest. We've been put into slavery. We have been given our hand to the Egyptians, the Assyrians, to be satisfied with bread. Our fathers sinned and are no more, but we bear their iniquities. Servants, those who once used to be servants, are now ruling over us. So now we're the slaves and they're the masters. Uh, there's no one to deliver us. Uh, even to get bread at this point is risky. Um, and again, that's somewhat tied into the, the period of the, uh, of the uh, siege on Jerusalem, the famine that was there, uh, and then the mistreatment of the people. And we're going to see that mistreatment coming. But he describes here all the displacing elements that no longer do you have access to all these things. It is totally dependent upon someone else. You can't just go out there and get your own bread. You don't go out there and get your own water. You don't get out, go out there and just get your own firewood. These things are not, no longer accessible to you. You are totally and completely dependent upon somebody else. And, and for the Jewish people who, remember, are called to be separate from the nations. They are called to be uh, pure in their, in, in their separatism. So there's no intermarriage. They're, the relationships there are, are very carefully constructed, and, and that's still the case today among many Orthodox Jews. Uh, their relationship with Gentiles is very carefully structured so that there is limited contact. I, I think a great illustration is, is uh, in Fiddler on the Roof where you see, you know, oh, do we touch you? <laughs> okay, I'll touch you with one finger. I want to limit my contact, maybe two, uh, if I'm friendly, you know, how do we engage with these Gentiles? And it's that whole idea we are called to be a separate people. And so now these people who are called to be separate are completely involved with these Gentiles that they felt they were above. Remember the arrogance of Jerusalem. They can't take this city. We are God's people. This is God's temple. These walls are impenetrable because God is we're the people of God. And this is his capital city. 
they still maintain that arrogance right up to the, almost the very end. And now here the survivors of that are being called upon that they have to have this daily dependent relationship, this constant contact with those that they look down on. It's very similar to how the attitude of the Jews during Jesus' day. Here comes Jesus on the scene, remember? He tells the story about the good Samaritan. Samaritans, oh. How Jesus engages the woman from Samaria at the well. And oh, you know, you guys are, you know, you won't even, we're half Jewish and that's not good enough for you. In fact, it's maybe even worse. Um, the Jews were that distinct, and Christ comes in, and look at the contact he has with, with sinners and publicans and, and tax collectors and, and Samaritans and, and, and sinners. And, it just, and the religious elite are just looking at this saying, ah! And so that same spirit was there in Jerusalem before its next fall at 70 A.D., that same arrogance, not a humble separation, but an arrogant separation. And I just want to share with you, there is that also in the church today, that arrogant, we're better than. Well, that we are called to be holy. We are called to be righteous, but not in an arrogant way that somehow we are better than the sinner. Oh, no. We still have contact with them. Our contact is very purposeful, not to be influenced to sin like them, but rather to influence them to desire after the things of God and to hear the truth and to be confronted with it and, and their own sin. And so we, we rebuke them, we, we, we confront them that that is wrong, but we do not do it in an arrogant fashion, but in a very humble fashion that it is our desire not to just create this huge gulf between us, but rather to recognize the gulf that already exists between holiness and unrighteousness and to help you bridge that by coming to Christ. And so we stand at the very edge of that gulf, not wanting to go across it into their sin, but rather to draw them, and it requires us to have a humble approach to our separation. And that's what holiness is, to be separated. To be identifiably different. And so God calls to be holy as he is holy. But not in this arrogant fashion. And so here God has the survivors of all this have been significantly humbled. And don't think that humility means that you get walked all over. Although that's the terminology here. They just, they're just walking on our necks. Uh, we just have this miserable life. But uh, I want to bring out the example of Daniel. Daniel goes to Babylon. He's selected among the best and brightest. And he's told, we're going to put you in this special training program that's not only mental, and, uh, but it's also physical. And you're going to eat this food. You're going to be groomed for these roles um, in the hierarchy of Babylon. And how does he approach it? He approaches it very humbly, but very separatistic. He approaches it and says, um, we really not supposed to eat that stuff. We, that really isn't in accordance with our calling of God. And he says, well, you, and the guy says, well, you have to do this or my life is gone. My, my job is over. My life is gone. He says, well, let's do a test. Can we just do a test and we can just see, and, and of course at the end of the test, he comes out in better, and his, he and his come out in better condition, and so they leave him alone. It begins to be noticed that this is someone the hand of the Lord is with. And that is what it looks like to humbly stay separate. He's still engaging with the people, but he's not participating in their activity. And he's asking permission not to engage in that activity. He's not demanding his rights. He is hope, pleading for them. He's pleading for the right to be separate. Not demanding it. There's no, hold, there's no 
arrogance here in his holiness is very humble, and God acknowledges that and elevates Daniel. And I think we see things similarly with Joseph and other examples that we do not take this idea of our holiness and elevate it to the point of arrogance because then we stand the risk of having to endure what Jerusalem endured, to be humiliated before the nations, the very people that you thought less of than yourself. Well, how did they treat him? What was the result? Well, he goes through all of the different groups of people in in any society. He's going to go through the women, the maidens, the young women, the exalted men, the elders, the young men, and the boys, and, and the wise men. He's going to go through all of these categories of people and he's going to say, look at what happened to us because we've sinned and our forefathers sinned. And if that bothers you, um, remember that God says, I remember the sin of the third and fourth generation, but I remember their righteousness for many generations. So yes, they have been deserving of this for some time, certainly, um, but they've also had opportunity to turn, and they did not. And so they're carrying not only their forefathers' sin, but their own. And so here's how their treatment is. Um, verse 11, it picks up, they ravished the women in the Zion, the maidens in the cities of Judah. Um, and so you have the demise of their physical purity. The princes were hung up by their hands, a, a, a common practice among the Babylonians, to simply display them. That they would display them as helpless. And uh, they would be hung up. And this was not a death sentence, this was just a shame and uh, to humiliate them in front of all, and so they would be stripped, tied up, and hung out, just usually on the walls of the city um, or on a frequently used road to be, to be uh, humiliated. The elders, it says, were not respected, and so even the elderly were not given a reprieve from this. They were mistreated. The young men, it says in verse 13, ground at the millstones. You say, well, what's so, you know, that's just hard work. I was like, no, that's women's work in that society. That is what the women would normally be doing, or the oxes if it's a large millstone. So depending upon the size, they're either treating you like a, men, like animals, or like women, depending upon the size of the millstone. And the probability is that there was both. Um, and so here's the, the young men, instead of doing manly things, they're doing work of animals or they're doing the work of women. And their manliness is taken away. Meanwhile, work that young men could easily do is given to little boys. And here boys, it says, are staggered under loads of wood. The elders have ceased gathering at the gate. That really is the, the wise, the, the, are, are no longer valued in their wisdom and the young men from their music. And so their, their leisure time is not their own either. So their work they don't get to choose, their food they don't really get to provide for themselves, and their leisure is not their own anymore. Complete humiliation, complete denigration by God. And this is really what Jeremiah sees around them, and, and it formulates this fifth lament, and he doesn't even take the time to, to alliterate it to the alphabet. Um, he, he, this is what he's actively seeing. This is, is this going to be our condition the whole 70 years of our, of our um, dispersion? Is this what it's going to be like? And so we go back to verse 1. Remember, O Lord, look and behold our reproach. Look at where we're at. And, and, and he wants to bring his case before God that, yes, that was necessary in Jerusalem, but now is this what it's going to be like for the balance of our existence? Because for Jeremiah, he did not see yet where this was going to end. And this is what's going to bring, be brought out the end of the dirge, but we have a few verses in between that again is a summary of 
all that Jerusalem has experienced now in, in Judah. It says, the joy of our heart has ceased. Our dance has turned into mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, we have sinned. In the earlier aspect, he talked about our forefathers sinned, and we are paying the price for their sin. Now he's recognizing, yes, we have sinned as well. Because of this, our heart is faint. Because of these things, our eyes grow dim. That this is the sin. That these things is all that they're experiencing. And so they are run, they're running out of joy. They're running out of hope. Um, when it talks about your eyes growing dim, they just don't see a light at the end of the tunnel. There's this despair that is starting to settle upon them because there is nothing to hope for in Mount Zion. Um, it's desolate, and even the foxes are there. It's just become ruins. And we come to verse 19 and following, and we have really a very strong and brutal ending to Lamentations, which is what you'd almost expect. And hopefully you notice that I read 23 verses during our scripture reading, and I'm going to explain why here very shortly. Let's look at these last four verses. It says, You, O Lord, remain forever. Your throne from generation to generation. Why do you forget us forever and forsake us for so long a time? Turn us back to you, O Lord, and we will be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless you have utterly rejected us and are very angry with us. And so he now has presented his case before the Lord, and in summary now, he is going back to really verse 1. I, what do I want you to remember? What do I want you to see? I want you to behold what is going on here, um, and I'm going to present the case of all that we are still enduring. We have recognized the sins of our forefathers. We are recognizing our own sin. And so now the question is, is there a light? Is there hope? Is there or are we, do we only have despair? Do you just, are you just done with us entirely? And that is the question that Jeremiah has before God. Are you done with us forever? Is this going to go on and on? Is there no end to this? Is shame and reproach, is, is uh, this degradation permanent? Are we going to just go the ends of the earth and be done? And so they come to the Lord and said, you're the one who has forever in your hand. You are the one who reigns from all generations. So I'm asking you, you who created time and you who is God forever, are you going to be in this relationship with us from now on? Is this permanent? Is really the question. You have humiliated us. You have, you have done what is necessary. You've judged us. The humiliation looks like there's going to be no end to it. I see no glimmer of anything to cling to. Is this what it's going to be like? It's how he's going to end this lament. And of course, we know the answer because we are a few thousand years from there and we have a lot of other scripture. But when you're in the mire, when you're in the midst of it, it's hard to see, to look up and say there's hope. I've had several contacts with Haiti, and um, by the way, Pastor Podesta and Pastor LaPointe are okay. Uh, orphanage sustained some damage, but no children were hurt. Uh, as far as we know, most of the churches are okay. I don't know what that means necessarily to a Haitian, but um, that's the word. Um, but what I keep hearing from several in the Christian community is, um, how much more do they have to get hit with? You know, <laughs> is God just going to keep plastering that poor little island uh, after the, the earthquake and, and uh, then the famine and now this? It's just like, it's a biblical proportions and and uh, it's like, is there any way to crawl out of this? Is it even possible and is it even worth it? And the fact is that all of us feel that way we're in the midst of it. Of the, just the stuff that hits us from this world and the things that sometimes God brings into our life and says, well, is there any hope? And we begin to despair. And Jeremiah is in that condition and he turns to the Lord and says, Lord, 
what do I have to cling to? Is there hope? Is this forever? Have you utterly, he says, rejected us? Have you utterly washed your hands of us? Are we now on our own? And of course, God is going to bring forth both to Jeremiah and his contemporaries and some of the other prophets um, and evidence that he's not done with them. And And this is perhaps one of the reasons God is so interested in making sure Daniel is given so much information about the future of Israel. While in captivity, this is not your end. And it is a wonderful thing to see them restored um, and to see them come back in under Cyrus to then see the relationship with the Greek empire mature and develop. And yes, they rejected the Messiah and there was punishment for it. Again, Jerusalem is destroyed because they rejected Jesus Christ. But God still isn't done with them. And so Paul comes on the scene and he says, is God done with Israel? No. Does it appear that way? Yes, and for what? (laughs) Um, About 1,900 years? It looked like God was done with Israel. And then he let people uh, rise up like some things that went on in Germany and Russia and even here in the stateside. And it looked like, boy, can these people survive this? Is God done with them forever? And we had lots of theologians saying that. The church has replaced Israel. And that's error. And I think every one of those theologies that declared that um, should have been slapped down as soon as Israel became a nation again. (laughs) Out of the blue. Boom, there's Israel and it's thriving, growing, mushrooming nation today because God isn't done with her. Paul declared it. Revelation declares it. God isn't done with her. But Jeremiah is a long ways from knowing that. And when he's in the midst of some of the worst of it, and he just doesn't see the light at the end of the tunnel. But he knows where the light comes from. And this is the next to last verse. He says, bring us to repentance. He says, turn us back to you, O Lord, and we will be restored. Renew our days as of old. He asked God the question, you know, is this forever? Are you going to be angry forever? Are you you done with us? And in the midst of asking that question, he takes this time to remind himself and the Lord that there is only one hope. In the midst of all despair, and it's not the Babylonians, it's not the Egyptians, it's not the nations, Their one hope is to turn back to the Lord. And his basic prayer is, Lord, don't stop trying to get us to repent. Don't stop bringing us, confronting us with our sin that we might repent. Remind us, turn us back, he says to you, and we will be restored. Well, remember, that's been the whole goal of God all along, hasn't it? It's the whole reason he brought the prophets. It was the whole reason he brought the Babylonian army down there um, in stages. They had an opportunity to repent between each Babylonian assault, and they didn't. So God's goal all along is being repentance. Turn them back. Turn them back to him. And it's still God's objective with Israel. And so... Jeremiah recognizes it, that this is our only hope. In all of this, our only hope is that the Lord keeps working in us to bring us back. We have to at some point respond and trust the Lord, and then we will find the renewal that we want so badly. We want this reproach to go away, and one day it will. And this is the promise of God, but it will be dependent upon them repenting. And that's why when we get to the end of the days of wrath and you see Christ coming with his armies, and I plan to be among that number, um, not the number on earth, um, 
and we find Israel turning to him entirely. And we find that throughout the thousand-year reign of Christ, there is no question of loyalty in anyone in Israel towards Jesus as their Messiah. Among the nations, yes, you have to force them to worship Jesus, but not Israel. And so at the end of that thousand years, when Satan is released and, and the great rebellion rises up again, all the nations rebel against Jesus, but one, and that's Israel, never again. And so that is their hope. And they still haven't embraced that hope. And there's still going to be some suffering. God is still not given up on them, and therefore there is still a light at the end of the tunnel. He is still trying to turn them to himself. And that is why it is a hideous thing that the church ever mistreated any person simply because of their Jewishness. It would be a hideous thing today to do that. And so this is the hope. And this is the hope not only for Israel in that day and in this day, it is the hope for all men. And as long as God is still looking to bring men to repentance, there is still hope. And it's when he is done doing that that there is utter despair. And a time will come when he is done doing that. And that's the last verse of Lamentations. Woe for the day when God is done trying to bring anyone to repentance. For that is the end of the day of salvation. The hour of deliverance is over. When there's nothing left but the wrath of God. So why do we read verse 21 again? In every synagogue, when there are three books of the Bible that are read, they never stop with the last verse of the book. They never stop with the last verse of Malachi. They never stop with the last verse of Isaiah. And they never stop with the last verse of Lamentations when they read these books in the synagogues. Because all three of those books end in this format. And so they go back and read the next to last verse. And it's amazing in those books, the next to last verse is so much like this one. There's still hope. A day is coming when there will be no hope. But that isn't today. And so they go back and read the next to last verse to remind themselves, Lord, bring us back because we're still living today and not in that day when there is no hope. But that day is sure to come, and that is why we have an urgency to share Christ with others, is because we are still in this day and we don't know how long it's going to last, and so we go to that precipice of the, of the great gulf between the saints of God and the those in full rebellion and rejectors of God, and we look at them, not down at them, but we look over at them, we call them to Christ, praying that they might respond, for today is a day of salvation. And we humbly beseech them, plead with them, do expend any amount of effort, energy, pain, suffering, that they might receive Christ as their Savior. not only to keep ourselves from being under the judgment and penalty of God's hand like the Edomites, but because we recognize that this is their age of hope and it's not going to last much longer. For their lives are short and this age is shortening constantly. Verse 22 is coming. But we are living in, still in verse 21. <laughs> And we are the agents of the only hope available to a desperate world. And when you see the, the attitude and the, and the temperament and the spirit of our country right now, not just politically with what's going on at this election, but socially in almost every avenue, what you are seeing is a contemplation of their despair. Verse 
they have no hope. What politician can you possibly hope in? What political party can you hope in? What platform can you hope in? What judge can you hope in? There's no hope in anything. What job? What economy? What, what model can you hope in? There is no hope. And it is coming where there will be no hope. But today, the world doesn't know that. They're asking the question of Jeremiah, is this all there is? Is this all there's going to be? Is this just going to keep deteriorating to nothing? Because that's what the world is confronted with. And our responsibility is to come to them with verse 21 and say, there is one hope. And that involves you responding to God's plea that you repent and follow after his son, Jesus Christ. That is your one hope. And so we reread verse 21 at the end because it's our reality. And we don't want verse 22 to be anyone's reality, but we know for some it will be. And so we urgently go out with the gospel. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. And we thank you for a book that's difficult for us really to study and read, and yet we see in the midst of it and at the end of it that you are there. You are from generation to generation. You are holy. You are judge. And you offer hope to those that will turn and return to you. Lord, we thank you so much for this day, this age of your grace and of salvation. Lord, we know that it is coming to a close. And we see the despair settling upon our co-workers and our neighbors and our friends and our society at large. And Lord, the hope is not in a bomb shelter somewhere or in another land or in a new leader, but in you alone. Lord, give us that message. And may it also be evident in our spirit, in our countenance, in our attitude that we have hope. For we have trusted in you. And there is no place for despair among your people. We thank you again for your faithfulness, both as judge and as deliverer. We pray that we might similarly and humbly serve you as we serve those around us for your glory. It's in your name we pray. Amen.